This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 455. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, joined today by Greybeard, Matthew Marister. What's up, man? Really happy to be here in the, the quiet storm, the late night episode of the podcast here. <laughs> uh, Speaking of storm, how's your weather out there? Uh, it's been raining like every day, but hey, I'm, you know, we got a roof and it's not leaking, so we're good. <laughs> that is good. that's probably the same band of moisture that dropped like eight inches of snow at my house on yeah Monday. i would I'd, i'll take rain any day over snow <laughs> but I, I would i guess i would say it depends on the rain because mm-hmm. like sometimes the rain is nice i agree but i don't mind snow like most people mind snow anyway Guys, we are so happy to be with you. This is actually our second episode recorded and filmed or whatever on Wednesday, October 28th. Uh, if you've missed the recent announcements about the podcast format and scheduling change, we are now bringing these podcasts to you live on Wednesdays of each week. Two episodes on a single day, one that we do live on Facebook and YouTube at 1 p.m., mountain time and one at 4 p.m. mountain time. We're a little bit late or behind our 4 p.m. schedule today, but uh, uh, just some things we had to, we had to get done. It is what it is. We'll try to, we'll try to make sure we do a good job of staying, uh, sticking to the schedule as best we can going forward. Um, But uh, uh, basically we're just trying to consolidate some of the production schedules, if you will, of, of the content and things we produce and allow us to have greater ability and flexibility and options for producing other great content and continuing to hopefully make concealedcarry.com and the concealed carry podcast better than ever. Uh, Today's episode is brought to you sponsored by guardian nation. Guardiannation.com is a place you can learn more. Uh, One of the things we're really wanting to get back to doing a better job with is, is producing more content for our guardian nation members. So there will be some things coming in the relatively near future that unfortunately for many of you will only be available for guardian nation members, but Hey, you know what? It's a good opportunity to maybe consider joining guardian nation again, guardiannation.com. Uh, tell you what, I didn't put the link in the show notes, but I'll just tell you right now on the air, you can also go to concealedcarry.com forward slash 14 day. F, let's see, 14 day. Concealedcarry.com forward slash 14 day. And that actually will give you the ability to add it straight to your cart for a free 14 day trial of Guardian Nation. And you can get in there and check out some of the great video content in our members area. You can also get access to a lot of other amazing things. So, uh, and we're doing a cool new little feature. I see Mark here is commenting and, uh, we are actually doing some cool little interviews with guardian nation members and putting those up in the members group, Facebook group. We have a Facebook group for just members. Anyway, guys go to again, guardiannation.com to learn more about the nation guardian nation. Also today's episode brought to you by ready up gear. This is a new venture uh, by us here at concealedcarry.com. We're creating a whole new brand that is essentially 
gear for shooters. Uh, you're going to see a lot of stuff coming and rolling out the doors here uh, over the coming weeks and months. Uh, right now, not a ton of stuff in the readyupgear.com store, but I would like to highlight a new product that we have just put out there. It is the Roger 22 Protective Earmuffs. Uh, I actually wore a pair of these all weekend, all week at USPSA Nationals last week. Obviously wore them before that too, but it was a great test in a uh, uh, long, you know, day's environment with along with some rainy weather and different things. And the Roger 22s did not let me down. I enjoyed wearing them. They worked great and they're very affordably priced. Uh, so we are very happy with the Roger 22 protective earmuffs available now from readyupgear.com. Go check it out. And, and they're electric and I really, there's probably not a reason not to have electronic hearing protection these days, especially with the price. I mean, it's almost the same as the, the regular ones you get at Home Depot or something, if that's where you're going to get them. Yep. It's funny because you mentioned, like, by the way, they're electronic and stuff. Um, like, to me, it's a given. Like, right, you, right. If you do not own electronic earmuffs for the range, for going to, through a training course, then, like, Repent now, fix yourself. Okay, like, and, and this is if you've just if you haven't made that jump, you haven't bought electronic earmuffs yet. Uh, maybe it was a budget thing, I don't know. But the Roger Twenty Twos from Ready Up Gear, very affordably priced, are like forty something bucks, um, and they work awesome for for that price. So uh, obviously, there's higher quality stuff out there on the market, but you're going to pay, you know, a fair amount. And these, I think you get a really high value for, for a nice entry level type price. So, yep, definitely electronic. I only believe in electronic. So there you go. There you go. All right. Today's topic, buying a gun, stuff that doesn't matter, or at least doesn't matter as much as maybe what you think. Um, so, but I gotta, I gotta put together a title that is kind of, you know, clickbaitish, right? You know, like we gotta get people like, what are you talking about, Riley? Like stuff that doesn't matter when I'm buying a gun, I gotta know because I'm, I'm maybe gonna go out and buy my gun, or buy my my first gun, or buy my next gun. Um, so stuff that doesn't matter, you know, this came out of a conversation Matthew and I had. Uh, he was actually commenting about a a post on my personal Facebook that kind of has exploded again. It's, it's, it's a couple months old. Um, and it's a post I made about grip angle, you know, just talking about grip angle as it relates to like shooting a gun, like how much of a factor is grip angle? How much does it matter? Uh, and, uh, it's funny, you know, it, it kind of went dormant for a while there. And then one dude, one dude decided <laughs> to comment on it. And, you know, it must've been like Facebook stalking me. Like, Oh, I'm going to go back through this Riley guy's timeline. Uh, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so he makes a comment and it like erupts again, all kinds of, you know, comments and, and people, you know, sharing their, their thoughts and opinions about grip angle. So that's actually where, where we're going to start with today's episode is about grip angle. And I'll say kind of in a relate, I mean, grip angle to me is, um, hmm, it, it, it's, it's kind of like when you talk about how a gun feels, you know what I mean? Uh, a lot of people will make that comment. They'll say, Oh, the grip angle of a Glock. Just, I just don't like the way that feels, or it just is 
it seems off or, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, it, it's feels not everything in, in when we're in this context of talking about grip angle, because grip angle could, and, and you, in the popular belief is that it is going to affect your point of aim. And people will often throw out the term natural point of aim. And this gun brand actually points more naturally for me. It's got a more natural point of aim than this brand of gun. So this is, this is something that a lot of people spend a lot of time like talking about and debating and stuff online. And so that's where we're going to start today is talking about grip angle. I'm, mm. I'm going to, you know, let you kick it off, Matthew, but, <laughs> but I want to throw in kind of a, a, a caveat of sorts and, and, and what that is actually an, an acknowledgement that when we look at human, you know, physiology, um, the structure of our body, um, the way things work, and if we just look at our arm and we make a fist, you know, in a, in a natural way, that angle that our hand or fist is at is, I don't know, it's some number of degrees. I don't really care what that is. Somebody out there listening is smarter than me will say, Riley, it's this number of degrees. Um, that's that's fine. I, I don't really, I don't care what, what it is. And I'll, also I'd say if you say there's one set number of degrees that a natural grip angle is at, then I'd say that's a bunch of bunk because it's probably a little bit different for everybody. Sure. Right? Like it's all, everyone's probably within a couple of degrees of each other, but there is no one angle. Now, acknowledging that uh, and recognizing there is kind of this, this natural angle, whatever that is for each person, then some would also say, well, that's why we have Glocks and M&Ps and SIGs and 1911s is we have a little something for everybody. We have a grip angle that will point naturally for pretty much anybody. What are, what are your thoughts about that? Like, what do you think about grip angle? Yeah. So I, I think I'll, I'll take one step before I try to explain what I, what's going on in my mind, but which is difficult anyways. But um, so I think when we're talking about feel, some people say, I like the way the gun feels. It points naturally or something. I think when they start getting into grip angle, yes, there's different angles, but I think they're trying to explain a per a reason why a gun feels better than another. And then, so you start looking at, you know, well, what's different about this Walther than this? Oh, there's a different grip angle. It must be the grip angle that makes it feel better. And that, that might be one, one thing, but, um, you know, for me, for grip angle, there's, like you said, there's obviously different grip angles, right? Um, and when we're talking about a grip angle, I guess what we, we could define it or kind of explain it is, you know, you would take the, the slide, right. And draw a horizontal line here. And then the angle, um, where the grip is, right. The, either the back or the front would be parallel, but in, in that angle, right. So we're talking about the angle and it's different for different guns. Um, I don't think for me, sure. If you have only shot one, one gun, right. Like a Glock has a specific grip angle for all their guns and that's all you've ever shot. And you pick up another gun, you point it naturally, right. Um, you, you may have a, a slightly different 
natural point of aim, but it's not going to be anything that you can't, that your body's not going to automatically adjust for over, you know, a, a short period of time by, by shooting that gun. It's, I, I think it's, it's kind of silly. It would be like, you know, if you uh, swing a baseball bat and all of a sudden you say, well, the, the ball was a couple inches higher. So now my angle is different and now I can't swing. It throws me all off. No, your body will adjust. Maybe the first time you see that pitch a little higher, you got to figure it out. But I think that um, grip angle, while it may make a gun feel one of the factors that may make a gun feel nicer to you in your hand or whatnot, um, it, it's not something that you're going to, well, I can't ever switch to a different gun because if I do, I've been shooting Glocks my whole life and grip angles different. And I'm, I'm, I'm just going to collapse. I can't shoot, you know, so I'll have to relearn how to shoot all over again. So I, I think it's kind of overblown. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what is natural point of aim or when someone says X brand gun or model of gun, points more naturally for me what what does that really mean um and and i guess what i would start off in my own analysis of this would be by saying that first of all there there's nothing if you think about it there's nothing natural about shooting a gun about shooting a handgun um there's there's really nothing natural about it you're talking about a mechanical device that in a general sense is not even though we we even though we look at some guns and we say that's pretty that's that's ergonomic that's an ergonomic gun if you really started analyzing it just how ergonomic are they really at the end of the day it's a chunk of metal or polymer that has to be unless it's custom built for you it has to accommodate a lot of different people, a lot of different shooters, right? So, yeah, there's definitely some designs that are arguably more ergonomic than others and maybe fit fit hands better, I guess, than others. Or the controls are more naturally reachable, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, for instance, nobody enjoys trying to reach a slide stop on a 1911 with their firing hand thumb, you know, unless you have freakishly large, long fingers and thumbs, uh, it's challenging to reach the slide stop. You know, it just is like, you have to basically break your grip or that sort of thing. The 1911 is not a, a, overall, it's not a bad design. In fact, it's probably the most ergonomic gun that was designed as of its time. If you think about how, and even for many years after the 1911 was released, when you think about like mag release buttons, for instance, for a long time, the mag release was on the bottom of the grip, right? Not ergonomic at all. You had to actually change your grip, move your support hand around or something, you know, do something really funky to get a finger or a thumb onto that mag release just to remove a mag. If you think about it, the mag wells on guns from that era are just like square cut openings and they're not really rounded or beveled or chamfered in a way to make it easier to insert the mag. It's just, it, they're very utilitarian designs. And the 1911 itself, even though it was probably the more ergonomic design of its time, still pretty utilitarian in its original form, right? 
Anyway, the point is, is that like there, if you really analyze it, there is nothing really truly ergonomic or natural about putting a metal and polymer and or wood uh, pistol in your hands and saying, now shoot this. Because then there's this this thing that explodes and makes a bullet, you know, leave a muzzle going at 900, 1,000, 1,100 feet per second. It's loud. It jumps in your hands. It recoils violently. There's nothing natural about the process of firing a handgun. It just is. Uh, and so when people start talking to me about, well, this one's more natural than that. It's like, yeah, but how much really? Because, see, I believe personally that with learning to shoot a handgun, it is all a learned skill. It, it is. It just is. No different than shooting a bow, an arrow. No different than throwing a spear. I mean, a spear, uh, an ancient hunting and defensive weapon, is not really ergonomic at all. It's a long stick with a pointy end, right? But yet... Mankind had to master how to aim and chuck that thing and kill things with it, right? Uh, or a sword, you know, long pointy thing with sharp edges and a handle on one end. Yeah, some are more ergonomic than others. But the point is, is any of these tools or implements that we that we use, particularly for self-defense, not, they're not natural. They're all learned skills, they're all learned tools. They're, they're something that we incorporate into our paradigm of life and self-defense, and we figure out how to use them effectively. So that's um, kind of where I'm at with that. So let's let's get a little bit more into the grip angle thing. The big thing is people talk about Glocks versus pretty much everything else. Um Yes, there are some variations from from SIG to Smith & Wesson to FN to 1911s, blah, blah, blah. But generally, Glock and a few designs that are kind of similar to the Glock are the steeper angled grips that are out there in the market. And now I'm going to go back to one of my first experiences with a Glock in my hand, Matthew, was quite a few years ago. I was quite young. Uh, by, by that, I mean, you know, I was probably in my teens. And after shooting 1911s and I don't know what else, revolvers too, especially, and then all of a sudden I pick up this Glock. And I remember, you know, lining it up on target. It, like, I, I I can almost picture this in my mind. I remember, because this, this left in it, an impression in my mind. I remember pointing at the target and I didn't think of anything. I didn't think anything of it at the time. As I'm doing that, I'm pointing at the target. I'm lining up the sights on target. I press the trigger. It goes bang and it recoiled and it came back down. And I remember when it came, when it recovered from recoil, it, the front sight was elevated above my rear sight. And that's the indelible impression that was left in my mind that, huh, well, that's different. And, and then as I got older and as I understood a few more things and I, you know, I was related back to that and thought the grip angle on a Glock meant that I had to turn the wrists downward more, particularly with recoil in mind to get the gun back down on target consistently. 
And to me, that meant, and this was my thinking for a long time, the grip angle on a Glock is not ideal for me. Hmm. It works for some people, but does not work for me. Right? I was much more inclined to think that the grip angle on a 1911, for instance, was more ideal for me. And so I believed this for a long, long, long time. So when I first started carrying a gun on duty as a, as a auxiliary law enforcement officer um, here in the state of Colorado, I carried for a good while, I carried a SIG and I liked the SIGs and I liked the way they shot. But one of the downsides with this, particularly the SIG I carried, I was carrying a, a SIG Pro at the time. Um, that's the polymer like version of a 229. Not a bad gun. I, I still actually really enjoy the SIG Pro uh, pistols. But uh, accessories and holsters and things like that were not as readily available like they were for a Glock. Mm-hmm. You know? And I remember one day asking a fellow officer, hey, do you mind if I try shooting your Glock? I want to run it through a qual and see what it's like. And I shot it. And yeah, initially there was kind of this, oh yeah, I have to push a little bit more down to get it back down on target. But I shot it great. I shot it fine. I passed the qual with with dang, pretty much a, a perfect score. I don't remember the exact score, but it, and it might have even been a perfect score. Um, but it was a really high score. And I was like, hmm, interesting. I thought I didn't like Glocks. I thought I didn't like that grip angle. Right. And so I gradually moved over to Glocks, Glock everything, carrying a Glock on duty, off duty. And now fast forward a few more years and longtime listeners of the podcast have followed me through my Glock carrying days now to my P320 carrying days. So I'm back to the old grip angle that I used to know and love. Well, wait a minute. Like I went from SIG to Glock to SIG. Two pretty different feeling guns. And not a whole lot to show for as far as like it wasn't that difficult. I mean, I had to spend a little bit of time getting used to each different platform, right? Each different gun. And even now you put a Glock on my hands and it's like, boom, like it, it just, it just runs for me. Yeah. I, I, th- I think that has a lot to do with um, uh, confidence and understanding where the point of aim is, how your sights are working more than just pure grip angle. Right. Like if you know where your sights are pointing and you're naturally pointing the gun and, you, you know, when you when you press the gun out, your sights are constantly, you know, misaligned low or misaligned high, then your body starts to understand, OK, this is how I have to do that. And it doesn't take very long to understand that. But I think the problem is, is if you're not looking at your sights, if you don't know what your gun's doing, um, then you can say, well, I can't shoot this gun because, you know, the grip angle is different or something. And it's psychologically, then, you know, you shoot it bad or something like that. So I I think um, there's a lot that goes into it. But um, I I did want to mention, um, I made the analogy of, you know, hitting a ball and it being higher. Uh, Jared, he he put it, he, he made a very better now a much better analogy he said grip it changing gripping will be like changing the a, a bat out of out of you know off of straight you know and that's that totally if you had a crooked bat it'd be difficult to hit to hit you'd have to definitely adjust and i think um that's a better analogy 
And I, I would say that a bat being off center, you know, one degree or something wouldn't make that much difference unless you're a highly trained athlete that's hitting all the time. And you, you would say, man, I've swung the bat so many times and it's, it's, it's just slightly off. Something's off with this bat. Right. But for most people, um, it probably wouldn't make that much difference. And I think the grip angles aren't that great where, you know, you have a crooked bat versus one that's just slightly off. So, um, so, so I, I will, I will take that and run with it a little bit. And I'll say that a, a more true analogy would be that if we're talking about like Glock and something else, both bats are already crooked. They're just crooked. Sure, at different <laughs> sure. sure. <laughs> um, also, another interesting thing to look, think about anybody that plays golf, right? Like your driver, for instance, or your three wood, uh, compare those to, say, a seven or eight iron or pitching wedge. And like the angle from that the club that, that the club head actually sits at in relation to the shaft mm-hmm. changes, mm-hmm. right? Your swing changes a little bit too, based on hitting a driver versus hitting a pitching wedge. So to, and to me, that would be, and I know not everybody's a golfer and that probably doesn't make sense to a lot of people, but it, it it's two different clubs and, and they're used, I mean, yeah, it's not a perfect analogy, but the fact is like part of learning golf is you learn how to hit this club. You learn to hit that club. You learn how to hit this other thing entirely over here. You learn how to, you know, use your putter. Right. And they're all very, very different clubs. But yet when you're proficient at golf, you switch back and forth between those different clubs. Like it's nothing. So this is, I think that's actually a perfect segue into um, this whole grip angle thing because the more proficient I think a person becomes at shooting, uh, I think this gets easier, okay? And so I do think that grip angle can mess with people a little bit more readily when they're really new and, and maybe their only experience is on one gun and then they jump over this other thing and it's very different. Um, you know, and, and that's going to probably upset them a little bit, but here's what I would say to all of you, particularly you newer shooters. And this is why we picked this as a first topic in an episode. We're talking about buying or choosing a gun and, and why certain stuff doesn't matter the way we maybe think it does. I promise you, you can learn to shoot pretty much any pistol and that the learning is less about the specific gun and more about you becoming a skilled, well-rounded shooter. Sure. All right. And so in other words, worry less about the tool that's in your hand and just worry about getting proficient with it, whatever the tool is. And you switch over to something else. It's got a different grip angle, different grip shape, different palm swell, whatever, all this stuff. Um, it might make mean some little micro adjustments in the moment, but it won't take you very much time. Like it, our bodies and brains are amazing instruments in being able to adapt to things, especially tools. They really are. Mm -hmm. It'll happen faster than you think it will. But 
if we have a mental block in our mind that says every time I pull the trigger on that clock, oh, I hate clocks, I hate clocks, I hate clocks, I hate clocks, like even subconsciously, that will have an impact on whether you learn to use that tool or not and how quickly you learn to use that tool. So that's why I'm, that is probably like the reason why I bring this topic up right here, right now in this episode today is to say, stop letting little things, little preconceived notions and biases getting in your way of just learning to shoot. Cause that I think I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced that that's what holds a lot of shooters back is their own little biases and these little things in their mind, conscious or subconscious that are telling them that they either like or don't like what they're experiencing as they shoot a gun or whatever. Agree. Agree. Can't complain or can't argue with that, man. <laughs> Jared, actually, Jared, this is actually quite, this is, you know what, Jared, your, your summary on this is, is spot on. Good. Yeah. Jared says this, I think really new people are struggling with the basics enough they won't notice small differences in the pistol. Yeah, I think that's true when someone's like really, really fresh. Because it's like all of it seems new. All of it seems foreign. All of it is like a lot of learning is, is taking place every time they fire a shot. Well, at least I hope that's the case. But then some, once, somebody get, once we get somebody past the, the beginner stage, then Jared goes on and says, mid-range shooters will have more trouble adjusting. I think there is probably a truth to that. There's kind of this threshold of sort somewhere that's like, well, you know, it, this is the point where someone's just starting to figure some things out and you throw them a curveball, and they're like, Oh, that's different. That that's, I, I agree with you there on that one, Jared, it, if we define, you know, those mid raiders is, is kind of like that. And then a elite level shooters, he says, or a high level shooter will notice it immediately but adjust rapidly. I think that's probably true. Mm -hmm. And also high level shooters are going to be a lot more in tune with what they prefer. And I think preferences become more important when you are trying to operate at the highest level possible. Mm -hmm. And and it's kind of like Jerry Mitchell. Like you can put any gun in Jerry Mitchell's hand and he will shoot, he will outshoot 99% of the world's populace. Right. But if you asked him, would you rather shoot with this Ruger SR whatever, you know, nine or this MMP pistol you've been competing with for years? Well, what do you think he'd pick? Of course, he'd pick the Smith & Wesson. That's what he knows. It's what he loves. And that's probably what he prefers. He's been shooting in a long time. So, I mean, it doesn't slow him down much, probably switching platforms, but there's going to be some very, you know, slight differences for sure. Yeah. The only thing I would add is that if I ever get sick or get hit by a car, you can bring Jared on because he makes really good points. So <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good, that was a good one. Well done, Jared. Okay. So let's move on to the next topic. Unless you had any last no, words yourself. That man. was it. That was it. Let's talk about, let's talk about boraxes. Dude. I have had some long winded conversations with people on Facebook when, and it usually happens like this. You're in some Facebook group. Somebody posts, what gun should I get? I'm thinking about this, but maybe that, or maybe this other thing. And they might be listing. It almost always comes up when somebody includes something SIG 
sour related in their options. And somebody in would be like, yeah, but the boraxis, bro, like <laughs> the recoil will be worse because boraxis. So take it away, Matthew. Oh, okay. Tell me your thoughts for <laughs> access and, and maybe define what it is too. Yeah. We're not talking about borax, right? We're talking about bore axis. Um, so I guess uh, best described in, in words and I'll, I'll try to use a visual for those that are watching like the bore axis would be, you know, you take your um, the, the axis of the barrel, right? So if we're talking the, the barrel being horizontal, um, how high is that, uh, that point at which, uh, you know, the grip where your hand can intersect with the grip, um, is it lower down or higher up? And so a higher bore axis would be closer to that horizontal line through the barrel. I guess if that makes sense, I don't know if that does it justice uh, or I make, I'm trying to make sure I understand you. Correctly. So if you're going horizontal, if you're holding yep. the gun horizontally, that yep. the, the axis of the barrel um, or the bore is the horizontal line through the, through the mm -hmm. center of that, um, mm -hmm. uh, barrel. And then your bore axis would be the height at which, uh, mm -hmm. it kind of intersects with your, the mm -hmm. grip, right? So higher bore axis would be, uh, or lower bore axis. I'm sorry. Lower bore axis would be your hand is closer to the axis of the bore, whereas a higher number or higher bore axis would be the axis of the the mm -hmm. bore is higher than your hand at a greater distance. Yeah, there we go. That that jives with. Sorry, I, sorry. I think you might have gotten reversed a little bit in some part of your explanation. Right. So, um, so yeah, yes. So the if we if we took the center line of the barrel of a gun, because that's where the energy is generated. Sure. Right. That's where the shots fired. That's where the bullet passes through. So a center line through the bore of the gun right? Hence bore axis. And then it's height relative to the top part of your hand uh, that usually we, we use the, the highest part of the hand on the grip, mm -hmm. meaning like the back, particularly the back of the gun, because that's where that, that becomes a fulcrum. That's where the gun wants to rotate around as it recoils. So the relative height of that center line of the, of the bore to the height of the hand on the back of the gun. And that's, at least that's how I think of borax. Sure. And the higher, the higher borax, this would be a higher number. So it'd be, you know, a, a, a bigger distance. And if you think about it, you know, you could change the base, you could almost change that number. If you, that's why we grip the, the gun so high on the back strap, right? We want to mm -hmm. get as high as we can. If you just artificially increase the borax by lowering your hand on the grip, then you could you, you can kind of see where uh, that that gun wants to mm -hmm. wants to recoil more. So yep. um, so that's kind of maybe that explains it a little better too. Yep. The higher we get on the gun, the less leverage the gun can exert over us when it recoils, and leverage is everything uh, in in managing recoil in a gun. Um, you know, and, and Mark, I think it, you know, kind of in jest he says but the rhino you know there's the revolver the the rhino that uh uh is like an upside down revolver right the the barrel fires around out of the bottom uh of the cylinder versus mm -hmm. the top like a traditional revolver 
And, and yeah, that was the inspiration for the design of that thing was let's put the bore axis down even like below the top of the hand where the hand grips the gun. And then we can get this like straight back recoil energy. Here's what I want to ask. Has anybody actually shot one of those Rhino revolvers with 357 mag in it? I have. And you know what? It's not very comfortable. <laughs> And the reason why is because it is putting all that recoil straight back into the palm of your hand. So it, it, it's like, it's like speaking of baseball bat analogies, it's like when you hit a ball, but you hit it off the, you know, the, the, the shank of the shaft of the bat and it gives you that nasty sting in the hand. It's like, Oh, you know, just, it's that dull thud and it just, Oh, it just, you feel it. You're like, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to hitting the ball in the sweet spot, it's like, woo, you know, and you, you, you hardly even feel that in the hands because the bat, the bat's so balanced the the, the energy of the ball and the way it transfers to the bat and vice versa. I mean, just all of that's just the right balance, the right resonance and all that. Right. Um, I'm kind of of the opinion that I think there is a sweet spot with, how we like where we place that bore axis height because if you have that straight back energy into into your hand and your arm it has the advantage that the gun muzzle rises less but you feel that recoil more directly mm-hmm. the higher the bore axis like nobody really enjoys shooting a gun that wants to like really over rotate in their hand i mean another example talk about say shooting a 500 smith and wesson magnum right it, it like wants to rip that thing out of your hands and it's i mean you're you know like even when you watch jerry who has such strong hands and shoots that kind of gun like all the time and you watch him shoot it, and you watch how much that 500 breaks his wrists as far as how much that gun's able to rotate in his hands mm-hmm yeah. So nobody enjoys that, but I don't think people, unless you're shooting really soft loads out of the Rhino, I don't think anybody really enjoys that particularly well either, but we're always talking like that's what we want. And we want that because we want to see our sights have as little disturbance in them as possible. But as it relates to actually running the gun and I think enjoying the experience, I think there's a bit of a sweet spot. Uh, the good the good news is it doesn't really matter too much because most modern semi-automatics handle this just fine. But when people start talking about how SIGs are so high of a bore axis and thus they suck to shoot versus a Glock, mm, no. It, first of all, the difference isn't that much. Uh, and second of all, there's some things we need to recognize. If... If a gun rotates a little more in the hands due to a slightly higher bore axis, here, here's the other thing. The slide goes back forward. And the slide and its energy as it goes back forward into battery will carry the gun back down to the target to return from recoil a little bit more easily than a gun that has a lower bore axis because again leverage is everything with how this stuff works in the end it, it kind of is i think a little bit of a personal preference thing like 
So I really enjoy shooting the SIGs now. I like the way they feel in the hand. I like the way they shoot. To me, the SIG feels smoother. And, and I hate really talking about things in terms of feel because it's not an objective way of evaluating and looking at guns and stuff. But the, the SIG 320 that I run just for me runs it just the experience and the way it recoils and the way it goes back to target is more consistent than the Glock is for me. Not by a whole lot, but it's per, for me at my level, it's perceptible. And I don't think I used to recognize that, but I recognize it in more recent history. And that's part of the reason I've switched over to the SIG. I just like shooting it more. If you put up my results between the Glock and the SIG, they're very similar. Slight edge to the SIG, which further confirms for me what I feel and perceive visually. The results on paper and on the shot timer are also slightly better, but not by much. Sorry, yeah. I, I, I can, dude, I can run, I can run with this stuff a long way. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's, Type it's in. interesting, you know, what, because when we talk about these things, um, and that's kind of why, I, you know, sarcastically said, when you said, you know, things that don't matter, I say they might matter, but just not as much, right? Like, so I, I think, um, a couple of the things we, we talked about, you know, um, grip angle and bore access it sometimes into your point when you said for a new shooter, right? Like, I think if I'm talking to somebody who's not a Riley Bowman, right? Like not a Jerry Michalik, um, talking to myself, right? Um, I'm saying to your point, these things that you hear about people saying that this is, is different. This grip angle is different. This bore axis is different. Yes, they are different. It is a thing. It's, you know, you can measure it. Um, will it make a huge difference for you as a shooter? That really is, a, it, it is, is subjective, right? Like I think it, it, we go back to that where, where are your mechanics, right? These things aren't going to change your mechanics. Um, if your mechanics are good, you will, you will, you will be able to shoot both of them, right? Low up bore axis, high bore axis, high grip angle, low grip angle. Um, and, and it, it is all a balance. It's trying to find, um, what combination, I, and I don't want to use feels right, but you have a preference to, right? Like everybody has different size hands and different grip and different size fingers and different strength in their hands. And maybe, you know, uh, all those things playing a factor, of course, right? We can't just say, well, if you can shoot, you'll shoot every single firearm the same exact way because that's not true, right? Yep. But if your fundamentals are solid, then you will shoot everything reasonably well. And one of them you will have a preference for just because all those balances kind of work for you. I think that's kind of where I am um, with all these, the, these uh, gun things, mm -hmm. little tweaks and stuff. Yeah. And conversely, if your fundamentals and your shooting skill sucks, you're going to struggle on both the Glock and the SIG. Right. Like, it's not going to make a difference. Yeah. So, and I completely, I completely agree with that. Like one gun over another, when we're talking about these type of guns, right? We, we, we could talk about the 
statistical outlier of whatever weird freaky gun that exists out there. And it might, you know, like I'm not talking about that. We're talking about the stuff that Americans most commonly buy, carry and use right now. SIGs, Glocks, uh, uh, Smith and Wessons, maybe some CZs, FNs, you know, that, that, that run of the mill, middle of the road, you know, all very similar. When you look at it in the grand scheme of things, they're all pretty similar in size, shape, weight, um, design, et cetera. Uh, and, and yeah, there's very little difference between the gun. Again, it, when we start really measuring and we get some statistical data, we, we will be able to eventually find some consistent differences, I think, between gun and shooter. Um, but, uh, but the differences, I think, are usually smaller than what people would expect. There's a comment from Mark. He says uh, that he's starting to notice he shoots well with different guns. Recently, the 320, some CZs, and even a 10 Foglio uh, were awesome in the hand. And, and he says, I was hitting relatively well with each. I think the brand of gun matters less than the training. That's pretty much the point. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, when we start getting into the real, real subtle nuances of how guns recoil and track, when we talk about sight tracking, for instance, that kind of stuff. You know, I describe the SIG being a smoother shooting gun for me. Uh, some of that, like, okay, so we have to understand that we're not always just talking about that very obvious muzzle rise that occurs during recoil and muzzle going back down, but there's also vibrations that take place that are very subtle and hard to see and hard to recognize. And so some guns, and it might vary from shooter to shooter, depending on how they grip, depending on how their hands interface with the gun. Um, also just depending between the actual gun itself, how the gun is tuned, and a particular ammunition load. But if you have a, a, a slide that hits the back, uh, the rearmost part of its travel very violently, there's all this excess energy that has to transfer somewhere. And sometimes where we'll get that is, is some vibrations. And, and it can even be manifest in a, in a back and forth, left to right, like a horizontal vibration as that slide hits the rear part of its travel and then the gun kind of you know vibrates a little bit and then the gun goes back forward and it might even have some vibration there as it goes to its forward most position in battery uh, and we're coming back on target and as you become a little bit more skilled at shooting you may start noticing and picking up on things like that a little more readily where you know with one gun you notice less you notice less vibration less uh, horizontal deviation as, while the gun is shooting and or being shot and recoiling versus another gun. And that's all very, very subtle, nuanced differences between gun and gun and load as well that might be fired. For instance, uh, this is one of the reasons I love shooting my P320X5 Legion. The way that goes in my hands is like, okay, and I've got a Glock 34, Pretty much, next, I had a buddy in a, at a match that he sh- shoots a Glock 34. I had my X5 Legion, shot them both back to back, and I much prefer the 320. But he much prefers the Glock, and for him and the way he shoots, the way and what he likes to see, it tracks better, more smoothly. There's less vibration or whatever it is. It just it it works better for him, and the Sig works a little bit better for me. Again, I ran the Glock 34, awesome, and I wouldn't mind shooting it. 
but we start getting into this into this place where we have these preferences, little, little, little things, little differences. So when, when we come back to the idea of is it the gun, is it the tool, or is it the shooter, a lot of these things ultimately don't matter that much. Yes, sir. I agree. Not as much as we think. <laughs> Tell me about trigger reset. Who, me? Or do you want Jared to chat? <laughs> so trigger reset, right? Like, so, okay, we'll talk about it really quick because um, I know we're kind of getting short on time. So um, trigger reset, obviously when you, when the shot breaks, right, you have to let the trigger out a certain amount of distance before you can pull the trigger again, right? It has to reset. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, this, this trigger uh, resets, it, the reset is very short. Okay. Um, so for me, if I'm looking at a trigger and if I do every single thing the same with, you know, Glock 19 and this reset is let's say f- just cause I'm not great at math. Let's say, and this it's a quarter of an inch of a reset. That's a huge reset, but let's just say for, for math sake. Um, and then I drop a different trigger in same gun and everything, but the trigger is, you know, a 10th of an inch reset, right? It only goes out a 10th before it hits that reset point theoretically, and I I guess technically, I would be able to shoot if my finger was moving the same speed, I should be able to shoot quicker splits with the trigger that resets shorter. Um, Now, this is presuming that I'm only letting it out to that reset point. And, you know, maybe on a high level, somebody can get in tune with basically how far, um, I need to let this trigger out, um, to the reset, to to reset and shoot again. But in order to perceive being able, especially in a shooting, a self-defense shooting, uh, maybe competitive where, you know, where you guys are, uh, dialing in your triggers to a certain point and you, you want everything, you know, flowing exactly how it was the, the stage before, but I'm, I'm talking about in a self-defense shooting, being able to perceive where that trigger reset is and being able to quickly, you know, squeeze the trigger right after that. It, it, I, I believe, I personally believe that that's probably implausible. And if you're trying to shoot to reset, right? Like we hear shoot to reset. Um, I've seen people and I've done it myself, short stroke the trigger where you let the trigger out, but not enough to reset it. And you think, okay, I've reset it. You pull the trigger and nothing happens. And then you got to let it out again. And so I think mm-hmm. um, a shorter reset, sure. It might feel better. Like, because y- you know, you're not, um, you might not have a, uh, as high of a probability of short stroking the trigger. Um, but I think that unless it's a great difference, right. You're probably not going to, um, it's probably not going to make that huge of a deal unless, like I said, um, you're high level and you're really in tune with, I've shot thousands and thousands of rounds through this. I know exactly basically how my finger has to move to, to shoot. Um, if you're shooting consistent splits, you're probably in tune with your trigger, but if your splits are all over, you're putting a different reset, a a trigger with a different reset point probably isn't going to make a big difference. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, I, yeah. Um, what about tactileness, whatever, of that reset? 
You mean like feeling the click or the the reset point, feeling it, mm-hmm. or yeah. how auditory it is? Like, what yeah, do you think about that. I, I've heard people say that, and, and you know, <laughs> how giving, important is it? Yeah, I don't think it's very important. I don't think that. I mean, think about it. If if you're in a self defense shooting, most people don't even count the rounds. You, you have auditory exclusion, right? Like you're not listening for a click. Okay, if you are, you're doing the wrong thing, right? Um, and, and so I don't think if somebody says to me, "Well, I'll hear the click and then I'll be able to," I want a really auditory click for a reset. Uh, that that might be great, um, but I, I don't. I it's not practical. And um, feeling it, like I said, I don't. I don't think that you're going to be able to perceive when somebody's you're trying to save your life here. You're trying to perceive a a tiny little, you know, nudge or click on your, in your finger. You're not going to, you're, you're cranking on that trigger, trying to get led into this person's body to stop them. And a 16th of an inch or, you know, a 32nd of an inch difference is not going to be perceivable. Mm -hmm. That's my opinion. You know, don't. So, uh, trigger reset. It's like a thing that, it's it's like a it's like a, a official gun writer's literary rule that if you are doing a review on a gun, you must talk about the quality of the reset of the trigger. And the irony of that is that trigger reset doesn't mean hardly anything. It, you know, first of all, it doesn't mean anything as it relates to actually firing a shot. Trigger reset does nothing for you regarding actually shooting the shot. What it has to do with is getting the gun reset. So that you can fire another shot. Again, it can be a preference sort of thing, but the reality is it doesn't matter. And I'll just say, and, and yeah, we looking at the times like, okay, we need to start kind of wrapping this up. But um, if you shoot to reset, as it is sometimes referred to, meaning that you, your the way you run your gun is you press the trigger to the rear, it goes bang, and then you allow the gun to cycle. And then, because meanwhile, you're just easing the trigger out until you get just to that reset point, and then you go again, you're doing it wrong. Okay. And we've talked about it in other episodes, and I'd go, I'd go into it more at length, than the, even in this episode, if I had more time. But the reality is, resetting a trigger does nothing except resetting your ability to fire the gun a second time when you're shooting the gun. So, don't you want the gun to be reset and ready to fire as soon as possible? I do. Mm-hmm. I do. Uh, we want to avoid what's called click banging, meaning we press the trigger, the shot fires, the gun recoils, it resets, we come back on target, we start looking at our sights, confirming everything, thinking, ooh, that looks good, I'm going to send another one, and then go, oh, wait, trigger's still not reset? Okay, hold on. I'm going to hold steady. Hold everything on target. Stay on target. Stay on target. Reset trigger. <laughs> Click bang. And that's how you miss. Because the cue for sending the shot becomes more focused on the click of the reset than what you are actually seeing in your sight picture. And so we simply want to get off the trigger and back on it as soon as we can. So that as soon as we see what we need to see in our sight picture, then we're ready to send it. And whether that whether that next shot 
it allows for an accelerated trigger press where we just smash our way on through because we're going fast or if it requires some measure of prepping the trigger doesn't really matter but we have to get to that we have to get reset and back on that trigger as soon as possible in the shooting in in the in the gun firing cycle right so here's the other thing a lot of shooters will have struggle with trigger freeze I still struggle with this from time to time. Some of it is too much tension in the firing hand. I'm working on fixing that. Some of it is getting used to where we just reset just enough to reset the trigger. And uh, that's that's a uh, kind of a dangerous habit because what happens when we start really pushing the speed is we think we're doing everything, we're doing everything right. And then all of a sudden we just don't quite reset enough. And so it's far better to over-reset the trigger than it is to under-reset the trigger because under-resetting it means it's not reset. So I, I, I'm I working all the time at making sure I get all, I pretty much get all the way off the trigger because it always works. And I promise you, if you watch guys like Jerry Mitchell and people will say, that's slower, Riley. Watch Jerry shoot really fast and either get a screenshot or, or slow-mo you know, he, he has a lot of slow-mo uh, footage on his channel too. So it's not hard to actually f- see this, but when he's going fast, you'll see his finger is jumping all the way off the trigger and coming back on. Okay. So it's not, it's not the reset that's going to determine your speed other than how fast you can get the trigger reset. In, in other words, it's not the length of releasing the trigger finger that matters. It's how fast you do it. Agree. Agree. So Ghost says shooting from reset helps some shooters from slapping the trigger. Mm, man, I want to break this down. I kind of just hit on some of this ghost, but oh, I don't have the time to. Yeah, we could we could talk about slapping the trigger. I slap that sucker. I slap it as hard as I can when I'm going fast. But you have strong grip. I think grip can can cover up a lot of a lot of slapping triggers and stuff like that. If you have a real strong grip, I think <sighs> grip is important. It's true. Mm-hmm. But if imagine this, if you can slap the trigger without disturbing the side alignment, does it really matter? Nope. Nope. Um, if you are going to go fast, you pretty much have to what people would describe as slap the trigger. That's just a fact of life. Problem is when people can, when people use more of a slapping technique when they should be using a prepping technique and shooting from reset is not a prep technique. Shooting from reset just means we're not ready to shoot until we hear that click. And what happens again is the click becomes a cue and then the shooter slams her way through the trigger because they go, oh, crap, I got to go now. The trigger's reset. Oh, 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 bam. And that actually causes more of a so-called anticipatory flinch. We could, you know, get into the nitty gritty on that too. But shooting from reset, actually, I'm convinced, Ghost, causes more problems than we are trying to solve. Than, than we're able to solve. All right, brother, we'll get into it. Maybe you, you and I can even talk offline if you'd like, Trey. Happy to talk to you, bro. All right, moving on. Um, night, night sights. Man, I used to think night sights were so important, Matthew. Mm. Every gun had to have them. Yeah. 
Well, have you ever, most people don't shoot at night, so yep. probably not as important. Um, I think what's more important than, I mean, night sights, there's nothing wrong with night sights. I don't, I don't, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with them. I like night sights. They're great. Um, I think more importantly than, you know, the tritium in the night sight is the, the contrasting color and the way the rear sight either is, you know, bedazzled with dots and lines and crosses and, um, or kind of subtly, um, suddenly subtly has, you know, some sort of reference marks on it. Um, I think that to me is more of, you know, so if I have a fiber optic site that is super bright and I have a blacked out rear site, awesome. If I have a, um, night site that has a nice big bright front site and a blacked out rear site, awesome. Like it doesn't, but as far as have to have glowing dots, um, you know, probably not the biggest, uh, thing that you're, uh, the application is very small for where you're going to be using that. But, um, I don't see the, I don't see a, there's no downside of having a night sight, um, unless, you know, it's one of those, like the Glock night sights are, I mean, it's, it's basically a three dot, they're three dot sight but it just glows. I mean, there's no, there's no difference. So in that case, I would say, no, don't spend the money on that. Um, Mm -hmm. but there are night sites that, you know, have a nice front, like the excess sites. They're, they're, they're kind of a combination of both. They're not fiber optic, but they have a nice contrast and different rear sites that you can really, uh, choose what you like best. Yeah. We have a legal and moral obligation. I feel to identify the target that we shoot. Mm-hmm. In, in particularly in a self-defense context. Well, anytime really. But uh, but we're talking about a low-light context, uh, usually a defensive environment, and we, we must identify what it is we're shooting. Night sights do nothing for identifying the target for you. They help you align sights in a low-light situation. However, to properly identify a threat, a target, we must, we need light. Okay? We go way back in the history of the podcast and Jacob calls it his three S's or a triple S disease shapes, uh, shadows and sounds. We don't shoot shapes, shadows and sounds. We shoot things that we identify. We, it's something more than a shape. It's something more than a shadow. It's something more than a sound. We know exactly what it is when we need to shoot it and we shoot it. That requires light in a low light situation. When we illuminate our target with light, the sights, you, you will not see the, the tritium light uh, coming out of those little vials because it will be overpowered by the, well, because you should be using a decent light to identify your target. And so what you'll have is a silhouette of front sight, rear sight. Okay. So if you are being Legally and tactly, tact, tactif, tactically, geez, legally and tactically correct in your application of deadly force in a low light environment, those night sights are only valid in probably 0.01% of shootings that exist. So it's cool that you have them. If you have them, I have them on guns because I thought I needed them. Um, so they stay on there. It doesn't bother me, but 
I'm getting ready to order some new sites for one of my guns that's going to have a red dot in it. So these will be backup sites and they're just going to be blacked up or blacked out sites. They're just going to be a solid front, solid rear, no dots, no tritium, no even fiber optic. And the cool thing about that is they're cheaper. Yeah. Well, and you have a, a an optic that, you know, you can, you can go, I, I think if you're, if you're using iron sights, I think it, it, there is a benefit to having a brightly colored front sight. I, I, you know, I, I think there is a benefit if you just have irons. Um, yep. All right, cool, man. Um, final thing, final thing. And I know we're over time, but, and, and because of time I almost probably shouldn't bring this up, but sight radius. And this is a tricky one. So I'm, I'm going to go through this from my perspective really quick and then, and then throw it back at you. Um, sight radius is something that's talked about quite often. Uh, and it, it's something that matters and it also kind of doesn't. And so this is a, this, this one sort of doesn't, it doesn't belong fully in the, this doesn't matter so much when you are choosing a gun to buy. But I would say in today's world, that's contextually dependent. So I have actually heard some people say that uh, sight radius doesn't matter that much on a pistol. I can actually mathematically prove to you how much easier it is to hit a target at 10, 15, even, you know, 20, 25 yards. Well, especially 20, 25 yards. If you have even just another inch of sight radius length, because it, it's simple, it's simple math. It's a mathematical formula that allows us to determine how what the accuracy potential is of a certain site setup, particularly the length between them. The longer the length, the easier it is to shoot those iron sights precisely. And the reason why is because it, the accuracy potential is all based on whether we recognize alignment correctly or not, or a misalignment. The shorter the sight radius, the more difficult it is to recognize misalignment the longer it is becomes a lot easier if that makes sense mm-hmm. so so longer sight radius with iron sights does make it easier to recognize misalignments which therefore makes it easier to shoot accurately at distance so some would then conversely say, well, it's a self-defense gun, Riley. I don't anticipate threats greater than five or seven yards. Therefore, sight radius doesn't matter. Mm. I believe in standards and I believe in being able to perform with our gun. That means I, you should be able to make reasonably accurate hits at 15 and 25 yards because what it teaches you skill-wise is what you're going to need to also save your life at three, five, and seven yards. I could go into detail on that, but because of time, we're not going to. Now, why sight radius is mattering less and less in today's world is because more and more guns, people are putting red dots on them. Mm-hmm. And a red dot optic means that this that sight radius is non-existent because our sighting system is on the same plane as the target. We see a red dot superimposed on top of our target at the plane the target exists at. So there's no other reference point between us and the and the gun and the target. It's just dot on target, press trigger, sight radius is irrelevant when we have a, an optic on the gun. 
So that's what I would have to say about sight radius. And so it really comes down to if you are choosing a gun that is going, like you have no intention of putting a red dot on your gun, then what, what, what I can tell you is that the shorter sight radius gun is harder to shoot accurately. Right? So take that into account. Um, that's kind of why if I was choosing an iron sighted Glock 43 X versus a Glock 48, I would go with the Glock 48 because I'd be able to shoot it better. And with, with very little other penalty because everything else is basically equal. The grip length, the, the thickness of the gun, the concealability of the gun. Yeah. People would say, but the shorter barrel makes it easier to carry and conceal. I don't really agree with that. Yeah. especially if you're carrying inside waistband and we're not talking about that much difference in, in length, but the difference in that sight radius from the 43 X to the 48 will make some difference in your shooting accuracy when it matters. So I would choose the 48 over the 43 X just personally speaking. But if I was going to put a red dot on then it really doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, the only thing, uh, well, let me, um, I may, might've missed it, but I just want to explain what sight radius is. Um, I don't know if you covered it, but um, sight radius would be the distance from the front sight to the rear sight. Right. Yep. So if you're, if you're, you know, new shooter or whatever um, sight radius. So obviously when Riley's talking about the, the, the angles and stuff, the longer, that's why a, a rifle, right, has a super long sight radius compared to a handgun in relationship. So, um, yes. Yeah, so if that helps, um, I know, um, John, he was asking a couple questions, uh, said he was a new shooter. So I just want to explain what sight radius was. So. Yep. Yep. Uh, thank you for the clarification. I, uh, due to my, Internal pressure to try to get this wrapped <laughs> up in a reasonable amount of time, uh, kind of rushing through some of that a little bit. Uh, but that's a, that's exactly right. Now, I will also throw out there, this throws kind of another little kink into things, but the distance from your eye to the iron sights also plays a role because it changes the, 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 the relationship of front sight to rear sight as far as how much space is between you know, the, the, we're looking at the front sight, not or front sight sitting in the rear notch, the closer I get to the rear sight with my eye, the bigger that rear notch is. And that can make some things more difficult to align. Okay. So, so, but, but what we're primarily talking about here is the actual physical gun itself, its characteristics and the, and the, dif, the distance between the front and the rear sight and that relationship and what that changes for us, um, uh, as it relates to, uh, uh, aligning things correctly on a target. So there you go. Now there's one last thing here uh, that I, t- I promised him I would come back to this towards the end of the episode. Uh, and I'm trying to remember the exact comment John here asked earlier. He said, is it best to just go to a gun range and get in about a hundred hours plus that's actually quite a bit of time, which is great to find what's comfortable. So this is where I'd like to begin wrapping this up. This is a common suggestion that's thrown out there in the gun community. And people say it in, it it comes from a good place. It it comes from a, I'm not trying to judge or put any of my own preconceived notions upon you. 
as far as what gun you should choose and buy and carry and all that. Uh, so it, it comes from a good place. Uh, one that is where we're trying to help somebody. And the suggestion is we'll go to the range and rent a bunch of different guns. You know, this is typically available. A lot of indoor ranges rent a bunch of different guns and then pick the one that feels the best or the most right for you. The most comfortable, for instance, I have a problem with that recommendation. And the problem is, is that newer shooters and gun owners aren't really in a place because they don't have a frame of reference to judge even sometimes what fits or feels best, except for what they actually like the, the comfort level of the gun. But the comfort level of the gun is not a really a factor in how well you shoot that gun. It, it, it isn't. And it also doesn't take into account other important factors when we're choosing a gun to carry. And by that, I mean, what are some of the things that do matter when we buy or choose a gun? The very top of that list for me is reliability. I need to know that this, if this is a gun that I am going to have or carry for personal defense, I need to know that it will work when I want it to work. Reliability is paramount in a self-defense context as it relates to choosing a gun. It's not the only thing that matters, but it is a hugely weighted factor. If the gun is not reliable, then why am I carrying it? Because I may pull it out of my pocket or my holster or whatever, put it on target, and I might even get one shot off, but I might need, in fact, it's likely I will need more than one shot. And on shot two or three, the gun seizes jams up, malfunctions, I'm hosed. I'm done for. Right? So reliability, that is infinitely more important than how the gun feels in my hand. How you will actually shoot the gun, how you'll actually perform with the gun will sometimes be totally different than how you feel with a gun. I can speak to that from experience because there's certain guns that feel great in my hands, but objectively looking at accuracy and shooting time. Okay. So the time with which I, with, with, within which we achieve a certain accuracy standard, looking at those objective factors, it does not always line up with what we think feels good or feels comfortable. Your feelings will lie to you about this stuff. Sometimes it'll work. Sometimes it'll line, it'll, it'll line up. But what's important is I put a gun in my hand that I can shoot effectively with. That's reliable. That's what's important. Yes, sir. Can't add anything to that, man. I think you're, I could, but we'd be talking another two hours. So yeah, <laughs> I feel like I've, I've talked a lot in this episode. I apologize, Matthew. No, no. You had absolutely nothing of value to add. I know. Jared. You at home with your family, you know. Jared so. had much more to add than me. So next time. He- <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so I have to give credit because this today's episode idea was yours. Cool. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, you, you, you came, you basically came up with the idea and then I ran away with and stole it. <laughs> I love it. It's okay. I forgive you, man. <laughs> no, but you had awesome insights too, brother. And and I know, and the thing is, is you and I both align on this stuff, I think pretty well. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so whether I'm saying it or you're saying it, it's probably going to come out pretty similarly. Yeah. You have, you have a bigger vocabulary than I do. I was an infantry grunt. So, you know, Hey, you know, Marines aren't exactly known for <laughs> vocabulary. And <they're> profane. <laughs> <laughs> Although Matthew's not a very profane person. No, no, I've, I'm a new man. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Well, brother, uh, yeah, we do need to wrap it up there. We're over an hour, but I've enjoyed this this conversation with you today. And I hope that for, for those of you watching or listening at home or at work or in your vehicles or wherever you are, that some of what you've heard today is helpful for you as well. Um, it, as a final summation, I've said it a couple of ways, a couple of different times. It's not so much the tool that matters. It's you. So pick a tool. Make sure it works. And then get good at it, master it, learn it, understand it. Amen. Yeah. If you get good with it, then at some point you might go, hmm, I'm good with this. But I I realize after spending thousands of rounds and hundreds of hours shooting this thing, that there's this one th- thing about the whether it's a trigger, the grip, the mag release, whatever, that eh, I just don't like it quite as well. And I was playing with this Walter or CZ or SIG or whatever. Oh, that feels a little bit better. Or that works a little better for me. Or that fits, you know, I'm able to reach the control. But, you know, that little stuff. Master the tool. Then you'll understand those nuances better. And you'll get even better after that. That's what I got to (laughs) say. We need to do a giveaway, Matthew. You have it pulled up? Uh, I am doing it as we We speak. So we are giving away a uh, free copy of the Legal Boundaries by State ebook. This is the ebook version, so you'll get a link sent to you uh, where you can... And this is a free lifetime access, including all updates. Uh, This is is our... It's our self-published book that includes 50 state summaries of all the different gun laws and and carry laws and different things like that from state to state to state. And then a bunch of topics that are covered in the last half. So it's basically the two halves of the book. It's a hundred page book, 50 pages, give or take of state summary, state legal summaries, and then 50 pages of just lots of good info about where, how, when, blah, blah, you know, you carry your gun. (laughs) So a free copy of ebook copy of the legal boundaries by state book. One lucky winner this person signed up at concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize sometime in the last week. And they are, they are now about to be selected as the lucky winner. And next week's winner has an opportunity to win one of these free tactical pens courtesy of us here at concealedcarry.com. Uh, so go sign up concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize. Matthew, drum roll. Yes, sir. Here we go. The winner is Lyndon. Congratulations, Lyndon. I'll be sending you an email. Not LBJ Lyndon, but Lyndon with the last name N starts with an N. So congratulations, man. Bravo, Lyndon. Congrats to you on being the winner of this week's giveaway of the podcast. So we look forward to seeing you all back here next week. Uh, I do have to preface it by saying my schedule next week is kind of messed up. Uh, I may not be on the podcast next week. We will see how it all comes together and works out. But until then, folks, 
Take care out there. And remember to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. Thank you.